0: talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change.
1: Just picking up on a comment, though, you, you said previously, cleaning up the ocean, Brad and I, I talked to a number of guests and, and a lot of attention and media is about the clean-up. You'd be familiar with maybe Boyan Slant and his ocean clean-up project and the five Gyres he's created, you know... Well, millions and millions of dollars to try and go out to the five dioceses and the great Pacific garbage patch and try and get the plastic out. And it's brought a lot of attention, but that's a lot of attention to a cleanup. And that's from what we know now. It's, it's only the tip of the iceberg again, you know, and macro plastics, you know, forming in one area. A lot of attention does go on that cleanup, Jennifer. And we try and sort of communicate, well, well, well. how do we stop it? So I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on those projects, like people like Boy and Slant and trying to mop up the problem. And maybe to uh, the next point, you know, from your research, where is this pasta coming from?
2: Yeah, so I think, the cleanup question can get quite sensitive quite quickly, depending on, you know, which side of the ditch you sit on. And I don't mean Australia versus New Zealand. That's
1: no, no, you wouldn't be saying that on our podcast?
2: Not what I'm suggesting. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely a section of our society who believe very passionately and strongly in cleanup, in particular, and Slat's ocean cleanup program and the array that was trialed off the coast of San Francisco last year. And that's reflected in the more than $40 million in donations that they received. And then there's a big section of of our global community as well, who is very passionately against what that program has been, not necessarily trying to achieve, but some of the messaging around it. And so I always try to be a little bit careful to not pick one side or another, but just to focus on the science. And for me, the science doesn't really stack up. And I think the messaging is potentially misleading in some regards. So I think there's a lot more information that needs to be presented to the public, so the public can make a more informed and complete decision. But the real challenge is that I think it gives us an idea that We can continue to use and in many ways abuse plastic, a product that is essentially designed to last forever and treat it as if it is this thing called disposable or single use. I mean, I just find that really offensive that we would call something designed to last forever and give it those names. I think part of the behavior change starts with calling it what it is, Mm. which is essentially hazardous waste. If we called it hazardous waste, we wouldn't Mm. call it disposable. So if we if we believe that we can continue to do what it it is that we're doing and throw it away and treat it as disposable, and someone else will come and create this solution that will just miraculously clean it all up, then that in itself is dangerous. There are, of course, other cleanup mechanisms. There's some really fantastic innovation here in Australia called the C bin, which operates on a much, much smaller scale and doesn't suffer some of the negative side effects as the ocean cleanup arrays do. For example, seabin doesn't have Mm. bycatch and things like Mm. that. And there's also, of course, cleanups involving community groups actually getting out on the ground um, on beaches. Mm. And that has also been criticized. People say, well, you know, why bother to clean it up when five days later, five months later, the beach is going to look the exact same way again. More is just going to wash up. Well, I guess I have two things to say on that. There's an incredible amount of education and community connectedness that comes from those kinds of events, and we can't really put a price tag, a dollar amount, on that, and that is often not being factored into that the equation. We can't just write that off. The other one is that nobody has really looked at whether or not repeatedly cleaning a beach over and over again through things like citizen science community cleanup events can actually catch up or Mm. lead to a significant and sustainable reduction in the amount of plastic on a beach. And Mm. that is why one of the students, PhD students in my lab, is actually asking that question as we Mm. speak. So she's crunching 15 years worth of data through the amazing folks at the Tangaroa Blue Foundation. They go and they do exactly that. They go to beaches over and over and over again with thousands of citizen scientists and they clean it up. And so We went to them and said, hey, guys, what if we could tell you if all these cleanups actually ever pay off? Mm. Can you get to a point where the effort you're putting in actually gets more of the plastic off of the beach than it's actually washing up as new items? And so hopefully we'll be able to share that news with the world in the next couple of months. But those are Obviously, really critical questions that help us guide what we do next as a global community. What's our best strategy?
3: Yeah, and I remember, I think it was Tangara Blues, Heidi Taylor, I think might have said this. And I, and I think she said, uh, and I'll quote, if all we ever do is clean up, it's all we will ever do. And I, I agree, there's a huge amount of sort of educational benefits associated with community for the cleanup activities but obviously we do need to turn the tap off and obviously on this podcast jennifer we talk a lot about the waste management hierarchy you know cleanup being the least effective most expensive and really sort of focusing more of our attention on avoiding pollution in the first place and then Below that, which is less effective, is reusing and recycling. And then the step below that is probably something like stormwater treatment. Now, Ocean Protect do a lot of stormwater treatment, but and we very proud of the work that we do, but and we find it a, a really effective way of stopping pollution. But obviously our preference would be essentially to, to be put out of a job. If we can, if there was less plastic for us to stop with our various assets, it would be a a, a great outcome for everyone, including ourselves. But I'm really keen to sort of get back to that sort of the piece you sort of talked about in relation to science, the fact that, you know, the scientific community or at least a large proportion of the scientific community is sort of downplaying the threat of plastic pollution when the sort of the science that I've seen points towards a, and recognising it's a fairly limited data set. But the science that I've seen and particularly the, the research that you've done and others have done, such as CSIRO, show it's actually a very, very significant issue. Like, I think one of the research papers that you put out was showed is that something like 100% of the seabird species that you looked at around Lord Howe Island 100% had plastic ingested. Like, all essentially every bird on that island. I think there was Lord Howe Island, which is a very remote island in the middle of the ocean. Without, you know, Lord Howe Island has a small community, but it's very remote. And 100% of the seabirds in that sort of area had plastic ingested. That's that's a scary number.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're dead. You're dead right. So it's the one particular species on Lord Howe Island. Definitely around 90 to 100 percent of the birds in any given year contain plastic, and often it's quite significant amounts of plastic. So 50, 100, sometimes even more than 200 pieces of plastic in one bird. And someone mentioned earlier. You know, you look at the quantity of plastic in these individuals. And you you cut them open and they're literally just spilling out with plastic. And you think, logically, there's no way that that didn't Mm. harm this animal. Mm. And I don't think that anyone would actually disagree with you in those instances. What's being challenged is that the reality for, let's use seabirds as an example, is that only around, and I hate to use the word only, this is actually Mm. a terrible statistic, around 65% of seabirds currently ingest plastic. But of those 65% of species, only around five species actually ingest plastic in a really significant way, like the photos that you would see Mm -hmm. on the internet. Mm -hmm. The other species only occasionally ingest plastic or might have only one or two pieces per bird. Now I really hate using that word only Mm. because it is really suggestive of it being something really trivial or minor. And I come back to this idea of us just not having enough information. Mm. The million dollar question there is how much plastic is too much? Mm. Is it one piece? Is it two? Is it 10? Right now, no one can tell us. And so there's a small number of people who kind of say, well, the majority of the world's seabird species or the world, the majority of the world's marine fishes only occasionally ingest plastic. And when they do, it might only be one or two or 10 pieces. So that's probably not enough, but the key word there is probably, Mm. we don't know. It could be that one piece and all of the chemical exposure that comes with it is enough to give that bird or that fish or that seal, or the dolphin or whatever, liver disease, kidney disease, or some other malady. We don't know. That's yeah, the and, challenge.
3: And it's just concerning that the science is, I think it, it translates its Latin, is to know. And the fact that a very large proportion of the scientific community are happy with not knowing when at least some evidence, and I'd say a significant amount of evidence, demonstrates to a very significant and horrific problem. That's very alarming. And in my mind, just knowing how these species must suffer when they have ingested plastic, like, like you indicated before, they essentially suffer in silence. And whilst they might, if they did a necropsy of these uh, animals... It may be hard to determine whether the plastic ingested directly caused their death, but one thing's for sure is that they certainly suffered. And I think that that is just a horrendous thing to sort of, I guess, consider, particularly given the scale of the suffering, like you indicated before, ninety to hundred percent of the those the seabird species had plastic ingestion. That's that's really, really quite frightening. And it's worth noting, like we focus a lot of our attention on plastic, but it's worthwhile noting also that plastic is is often uh, like a sponge for a whole bunch of other contaminants. So whilst plastic might sort of be ingested and and may in some cases actually go through the species, some of these plastics are uh, absorbing a whole bunch of nasty heavy metals and other sort of contaminants, which obviously can sort of uh, leak into the the flesh and sort of organs of, of the animal, causing, again, who knows what impacts.
2: That's right. And in many cases, that's probably going to be the majority of the impacts that are felt for those species that are only ingesting, you know, one or two or five pieces and only infrequently is that the plastic itself might not be abundant enough or it might be really small pieces that it's not going to, you know, cause perforation or an ulcer. It's not going to block the digestive tract or anything like that, but it is likely going to expose them to a suite of chemicals. And the research so far has shown that if you have plastic in your stomach, your chemical load for things like heavy metals and other trace elements, and some of the big, nasty, persistent organic pollutants, which are things like PCBs and flame retardants and other, you know, basically just chemicals Mm. that really shouldn't be in wildlife. The concentrations definitely go up in animals that have plastics in their bodies. So there is a relationship going on there. And the really interesting thing is that these studies tend to be done somewhat in isolation. So because of limited funding, because of limited time, all these kinds of things, a particular study, myself included, I might only have funding to look at, let's say, heavy metals. And so I'll look at whether or not a bird has ingested heavy metals and whether or in plastic and whether or not I can detect heavy metals in their tissues and whether or not I can detect any negative consequences. So is that bird Mm -hmm. smaller? Is its wings shorter or -hmm. something like that? But I don't have funding to also look at all of the other potentially hundreds of chemicals that probably came with those same bits of plastic. And so the story that I'm able to tell through my research, despite all of my best efforts, is not complete. And so I think we always have to have that in the back of our minds that researchers only have so much time and so much money, and there's Mm. likely a lot of other bits and pieces of the puzzle that we need to be factoring in.
3: And the fact that there's always known, knowns, and there's unknown, unknowns, the fact that there's – It seems to be like a very large proportion of the scientific community just don't want the questions asked in the first place because they might be a little bit nervous about the answers. But this is a question I had for you. There's a whole bunch of plastic and contamination in various aquatic species, including fish. And obviously humans often eat fish. Is this contamination a potential human health risk?
2: That's one of the key questions that a lot of people are concerned about. And I think making that leap or that jump between what's in the animals that we consume and what's in us, is going to be a little bit of a a tricky one, but certainly a really important one. Mm. So we've started to iron out the question of if an animal consumes plastic, does that plastic then introduce chemicals into its bloodstream. I think we can largely accept that the answer to that is yes. The next question is, for those animals, let's focus on fish, because that's mostly what Mm. we're going to be eating out of the Mm. ocean. If then a human comes along and harvests that fish and wants to eat it, is that fish going to exceed human health standards for food products? And if it does, How certain can we be that it exceeded those human health standards, Mm -hmm. those safety standards, specifically because of the plastic that that fish ingested? Mm -hmm. And that's a bit of a tricky one because for a number of marine species and also terrestrial species, we already have safety standards for consuming products like dairy and poultry and fish and things like that. And let's use tuna as an example. There are some pretty strict consumption limits and standards for tuna for things like mercury. So we already know that tuna have relatively high levels of mercury, but we also know that tuna don't really ingest plastic very much. So where that comes from is obviously non-plastic sources. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Now, if over the next five years or 50 years, tuna start ingesting plastic, Will the level of mercury and other chemicals go up? Possibly, and I would say probably, given what we know in other species. But we would really need to be monitoring them quite closely to be able to establish definitively that those chemical concentrations went up specifically because of plastic and not because of something else. Mm. And then make the determination that, you know, maybe humans should be a lot more careful, even Mm. more careful than we already are Mm. when consuming Mm. them. But it's certainly something that we need to be conscious of moving forward.
3: Mm. Uh, Jeremy asked this question before. Uh, I I think we might have jumped around it. But the question was, uh, in places like Lord Howe Island and all these sort of exotic island locations that you go to, recognizing they're often in the middle of the ocean, where is all this plastic coming from? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
0: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend.
2: Ah, such a great question. So, you know, I once assumed, and I think a lot of people that I talk to assume that because I go to these incredibly remote locations, I mean, Lord Howe Island is about 650 kilometers offshore of Sydney. So that's, Mm. you know, fairly remote, Mm. but it's also only an hour and a half flight with Qantas. So (laughs) I think that kind of puts it in perspective. But when I go to Henderson Island in the South Pacific, you're talking about Oh gosh, I mean, my total travel time to get to Henderson is somewhere in the range of about five days. Oh! I mean, it's proper remote. But the really interesting thing about all of the locations that I go to, regardless of the remoteness, is that when it comes to plastics and the associated chemicals, nowhere is remote. Nowhere is immune. Nowhere is safe. So plastics and the chemicals that hitch a ride on them are distributed evenly by winds and waves. And so essentially what one country lets leak out in their stormwater drain systems or in their rivers or whatever washes up on another's doorstep. So, you know, we can't point the finger at any one country and say this one is to blame and definitely that one, but not us. Because when I go to Henderson Island, for example, I mostly get rubbish from New Zealand despite the fact that to get from Henderson to New Zealand is 11 days sailing. I mean, that's proper remote. (laughs) I know it's 11 days because when the ship broke down, that's how long we had to wait for a rescue. (laughs) And when I go to the Cocos Keeling Islands in the West kind of central East Indian ocean, we get Malaysia and the Philippines, you know, so where you go in the world, you get rubbish from all possible corners of the globe. And it basically means that each and every one of us needs to act differently and take responsibility wherever you are in the world. I think maybe that's one of the messages that islands can tell us.
3: Look, and I guess that's probably a great, a great segue to, a, I guess, my next question is, is how do we actually solve this plastic pollution problem?
2: Oh boy. That's, that's a tough one. Over
1: to you, Jennifer. Uh, I'll stay out of this one. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's all up to me. Come on. <laughs> I think obviously some really big things need to happen at a really high level. And for, you know, the people who are listening right now for us, you know, the three of us, even myself included, you know, we're not those players. We're not playing at that level. So can we ever dream to play at that level and influence that level? Probably not. So, I think it's more realistic to talk about the things that we can realistically do. And one of my favorite things, I think, is you know, we've all heard about reusable bags and keep cups and bamboo toothbrushes and all those kinds of things. And absolutely every single one of us on the planet should be using them and so much more, you know, on your produce bags. And the list goes on and on. And so many of these things are cheap or free, very easy and it's really just about getting into a new and improved habit. But the reason why we're still in this sticky mess is because amazingly enough, despite the fact that plastic is literally like in every newspaper, magazine, it's on Netflix, it's on iTunes, to me and to you guys who who live and breathe the ocean, it feels like we're literally drowning in plastic. Mm-hmm. It's not that way to everyone. I, I am endlessly surprised at. I still bump into people who kind of go like plastic what? Mm-hmm. You know, so as hard as we're all collectively trying to get the message to the masses, we're missing people. Mm-hmm. And you can't change a global problem without the globe engaged. Mm-hmm. And so I think my favorite thing is I say to people, grab your aunt your uncle, your nephew, your cousin, your, your whatever, your best friend, the person who doesn't care about the environment or who isn't passionate about the ocean or who always forgets their keep cup or who, you know, whatever. And that's the person we need to talk to. We don't need to preach to the converted, although we definitely need to feel like the converted have a community of support because it's tough out there, but like grab your uncle who just wants to go and like shoot a gun at a firing range or what? Uh, nothing against gun shooters. I, no judgment to I, peace and love to all. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you get what I mean? Like we just, we <laughs> have to get to those last 5% of people and say it matters. And like, it just matters. Mm. And we need you. We can't do it without you. We need you.
1: Yeah, it's, it's it's a real interesting one. I mean, Brad, how do you solve the plastic pollution problem? You know, I'll throw it back to you. <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's a pretty big question.
3: Yeah, I, I guess fundamentally we've got to stop using. I, I, I love uh, Jennifer's reference of single use to hazardous waste.
1: Yeah, no, so, mate, mate, I actually just thought, well, let's start a water company and sell single use water and call it hazardous waste. <laughs> People would probably bloody buy it. <laughs> You know, but no, no, I really love that reference too. This is not in single-use plastic. Stop calling it that. Call it what it is. It's a brilliant way to actually go, no, this isn't a hazardous waste. Have you got the government to call it hazardous waste?
2: (laughs) Yeah. There's an amazing scientist out of the University of Toronto named Chelsea Roshman who published a paper a couple of years that basically says, let's call it what it is. Let's call plastic hazardous waste. And she sets the scene. She makes a case for it. And I think it's brilliant. That is absolutely the way that we need to be going. Mm. We should always call things what they are. Mm. You know, we we treat things relative to how they we call them. And, and if we call it single use, that's mm. what we're going to do because that's mm. what's in its name. You know, and then I just think, oh, yeah, it's just it's, for me, that's a no brainer. A language change seems so simple, but it, it actually yeah. is really fundamental.
3: And obviously you've been battling against the scourge of plastic pollution for a few years now. But I guess the question is, are you
1: optimistic about the future?
2: Do you want the, the honest answer?
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 100%. There's only honesty on here.
2: No, no, I'm not. <laughs> if you're not. No, <laughs> but, but I'm not. I'm really not. And I like to be honest with people, but that's my choice. Mm. And that's also because as a scientist, I'm incredibly close to this. So I'm privy mm. to information mm. that a lot of people aren't. But what I say to that is that I truly again, I'm gonna go to an analogy. Now, I don't come from a military background, so I don't know why a military analogy works in this case. But I think in society we we look up to, we respect, we hold up with pride those who stood up for what they believed mm. in who fought on even when the outcome of the battle was known when all was lost mm. they continued to fight on because that's what their principles were that's what they believed in and so that's how i i see myself and what i what i ask people to do is not to focus on whether or not the battle is won or lost but simply to refuse to wave the white flag don't go down with the ship just you know have a rallying cry surround yourself with good people doing great things and know that you're doing the right thing and that you're you're thoroughly supported and loved for it and whether you believe or don't that doesn't affect the future but what you do does
3: yeah look I think the the, the quote that comes to mind and I'm going to terribly butcher it is it's around planting a seed today so someone else can sit in the shade of a tree and I think sometimes when you're sort of working in on the coal face and digging the tunnel you, you don't actually have the opportunity to see the light at the end of the tunnel but that doesn't mean you stop digging uh, That's and right. I think and I think uh, I've used another you know, analogy of the warrior's path in terms of you know we choose this path not because it's easy but because it's hard and it is the right thing to do it'd be very easy for all of us to go do something that was all about just making a lot of money and uh, drinking pina coladas by the poolside. know it would be probably satisfying for a little while. But fundamentally, deep down, we know this is a big problem, which is causing a whole bunch of sentient beings uh, to experience significant suffering on a mass scale that we just can't get our head around. Will we win the fight? I don't know. But I think at the very least, that doesn't mean we're going to stop fighting. And am I optimistic about the future? I am, but I, I'd almost argue it's, it's irrelevant, uh, whether I'm optimistic or not. I'm still going to work towards this issue and oh, do yeah. my darndest to to fight it. And to be honest, I'm quite certain that I actually will, someone, uh, whether it be uh, us or whether we get to live out to see the sort of fruits of our labours and, and the labours of others, but I, I honestly think we we are on the right track and it is the right thing to do and it's uh, something worthwhile and we'll just continue doing what we do.
1: Well, I'll add my bit then, Right where I sit with it, and I said this to you before, Brad, and I probably said it to, uh, to everyone on the show, it's going to come down to data proving that this is a human health issue. And you alluded to it before, Brad. But as soon as people, it's proven that someone's died from plastic injection, you know, oh, my God, it's going to be like COVID. Oh, oh, oh. Everyone's going to be running around going, oh, geez, what's, where's all the research? And then it's going back to the, the Corey Hancock saying pain. People don't want pain when it really starts affecting them, mm. and the data's there to prove it. That's when I think you'll see just, yeah. And that's my opinion. But look, we're doing everything we we can, and you know, obviously talking to Jennifer and Brad, doing what we do. But deep down, I'm like, hey, do, someone's just got to eat some plastic and die, basically, and then you know,
3: yeah. And fundamentally, and historically, the human race have, have time and time again raised challenges far bigger than this, and one. And I just see this as one more. So, look, I'm actually, all things considered, I am optimistic about the future, and I look forward to the day that we will uh, flash around in some plastic-free uh,
1: ocean water. Well, just for, for everyone, so it's Jennifer and I against you, so two against one, mate. we <laughs> go off and be happy. You're fine. Oh, well, look, I think we'll try and land this plane, um, yeah. Brad. Jennifer, what an amazing chat. You know, apart from the sort of the hour Google chat and um sorry, the Google stalk that I do before we come on and then seeing you in documentaries, I had no background <laughs> or didn't really know who you were. And I just want to thank you for coming on and sharing your, your knowledge, your passion. And, you know, thanks for telling your story because now look, I, I get to learn more. Hopefully our listeners obviously will do, but again, storytellers, great communicators like yourself, you know, just hats off to you. And thanks for coming on our show. Well,
2: thanks for having me. And, uh, a- flattering me inside out and backwards.
3: <laughs> yeah, and Jennifer, I should point out, I did a little bit more than an hour of Google talk on you. So I've been familiar with that. I've seen you in those documentaries. I've read a lot of your articles and, and seen a lot of YouTube videos. And you might not be as optimistic as me, but I can tell you right now, you do amazing work and it's fantastic work and it's really important. And you do it really well. But what, what also you do really well is the communication. And I think you speak and explain so well. It's really fantastic. And it gives us a lot of sort of information to work with and sort of build on. And yeah, I've just really enjoyed this chat. And I just thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much for coming on our show. I know you're busy and it's been really fantastic.
2: Well, uh, thank you guys. I mean, I'm who I am because people like you give me a platform to, to share my stories and talk about my photos and all the crazy stuff that I get to do in my job but also because I work with some pretty stellar people who make the science that I'm just one part of possible. So it's a collaborative team effort, and I'm, I'm forever grateful. Thank you.
3: And we should ask, like, if people want to get in contact with you or your team, is it best via the Adrift website?
2: Yeah, so at driftlab.org, we've got a contacts page. and There's lots of information for, you know, like future students who might want to join the lab or Mm. a news page for all of the crazy things that we're doing, art, Mm. science, collaborations, Mm. citizen science opportunities, all that kind of stuff. We're a pretty busy lab. Yeah, come check us out.
0: Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.